to Matthew 21. We're going <clears> to <throat> be looking at a story written there this morning. Before we begin, though, I'd like to start with a little three-minute <clears throat> video clip here, and uh, then we'll talk about what this has to do with Palm Sunday. We're revising what a church is today. The Bible says, and they continued, the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, we've revised that and said, if you can get people for one hour on Sunday morning in a building, that's the church. That's not the church. We can use every device we want to get people for one hour and keep it early and keep it moving and keep it going because people have important things to do that day. That's not the story of the Christian church. That might be the story of my church or your church, but that's not the church Jesus built. And the history of revivals down through the ages have told us that whenever things have grown crass and commercial and secular and hard and worldly, God sends a revival. And what's always the sign of the revival? Behold, they pray. The church begins to pray. Moody goes somewhere in England and they begin to pray. Finney goes to upstate New York and they begin to pray. The great awakening happens in America and they begin to pray. Who was the fancy preacher? Nobody. They prayed. Where was the great music? Oh, they made great psalms, but that wasn't the great thing about it. It was they prayed. Prayer preceded it. Prayer kept it going. And the minute prayer ended, the spirit of God lifted. And we got back into one of those tougher times for the church of Jesus Christ. You folks, young people who are going to these schools, let me tell you, as someone who went to college as a basketball player on a full scholarship and traveled around the country playing basketball, never had the privilege of going to a school like you folks are going to. The greatest thing anybody can learn in this building is how to pray. How to call on God so that God intervenes in a situation. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And that's the church. And I talk to well-known ministers. I talk to men. If I mention their names, a lot of you would know a lot of their names. And they tell me privately, off the record, hey, listen, I know I'm dazzling them with my books and my sermons. But, Brother Jim, something's wrong. Because except for Sunday morning, one hour, I can't get a soul into the church. If I called a prayer meeting, not one-tenth of the congregation would come. They'll pay $20 for a concert, but Jesus can't draw. They'll pay all kinds of money to hear somebody do something, and that's wonderful. I'm all for that. But doesn't it awaken us that if the prayer meeting was called, that nobody would come when God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The greatest thing anyone in this building can learn is how to pray. How about you? Now you might ask, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? I hope by the time we're done, you will see, not only does this have a connection, this is one of the central pieces to what this king who came on Palm Sunday came to proclaim to the world. 
You know, Palm Sunday is an amazing day. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian, one of the reasons why I base my life on, on this book is just some of the miraculous things that I find here. I'd like to show you one of them this morning. It has to do with Palm Sunday. You go all the way back to the book of Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever came, almost 500 years early. And this is what is written. Listen to what it says. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, he's talking here about the Messiah, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. How many sevens is that? Well, that's 69. Some of you want to figure that out. Some of you, I know, I know some of you, the few of them are already calculating. You add up how many days that is? And it's interesting that they tell us if you take the decree, which was, was written sometime in, we, we around in 445 BC, we find that this lands us during the ministry of, during Jesus Christ's public ministry. It lands us right in that period of time. Uh, a guy by the name of Sir Robin Andersons on The Coming Prince did a work, and you can read his work, and he identifies the day of, which is an acceptable day, of the decree that was sent to rebuild Jerusalem, March 14th, 445 B.C. He walks it through. You know, it's interesting because it's, this is 483 years. If you do the math, you will come up with 300 or 476 years. So you're going, to be, you're going to be off by seven years. And people at first said, well, see, that doesn't fit. But what what you have to remember is that the Jewish calendar was 360 days, not 365. According to the Jewish calendar, this is 483 years. Sir Robin Anderson traces that 483 years to April 6th, 32 AD, landing on the exact day of Palm Sunday. At the least, we find that this prophecy lands us in the public ministry of Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah. And then notice what 26 says is going to happen. Who would have ever thought this? Daniel 9, 26. It says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. In other words, this anointed one is going to be wiped out. What? What kind? So the Messiah comes, right? The anointed one comes, the one greater than David, and he's going, to be, he's going to be killed. That makes no sense. And yet it makes perfect sense from the plan of God. The ruler will come. Notice what they will do. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So this day was prophesied. 483 years before it ever took place. 
The death of Jesus Christ here is predicted long before it ever took place. I also think it's interesting that in the Jewish world, four days before Passover, you would go out and you would pick the lamb. Four days. You would identify the lamb you were going to slay for the Passover. What's Palm Sunday? It's four days before the Passover, and God is identifying his lamb who is walking into Jerusalem. So what happens on that day? Kids are, they're waving palms, pictures of what happens on, on Palm Sunday. Let me read a portion of that. The disciples are instructed to get a donkey. It says the disciples in verse 6, chapter 21. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the story keeps going as Matthew reads it. And this is just a little different than maybe some of you have, have sat here for many Palm Sundays and you have a picture of Jesus. But if you remember, there were kids, right? And they were praising and, and so forth. So I want you to listen to the story because it, it doesn't stop here. Verse 11 says, The crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. And the next verse says, And Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, My house will be called... A house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer. This is the first thing. Matthew tells us this is the first thing Jesus says on Palm Sunday. My house, he goes into the temple, he overturns the tables. He said, what's going on here? He said, my house is to be a house of prayer. The first act of this king. You have made it a den of robbers. And then notice, and the blind and the lame came to him. Where is he now? He's in the temple. Not up on the hill, not up on the road. This isn't the kids up on the hillside. This isn't the lame and the blind. It says at the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting. Notice, they saw the wonderful things. The wonderful things that he did. When they saw this, we see, and, and also not only the wonderful things, but the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. He says they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Jesus says, uh, yeah, I can, I'm not deaf, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants who have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night.
So <clears throat> this is interesting, and I'd just like to take a little bit of time here and explain. Because if you were to go over and read Mark's example of the triumphal entry, here's what happens. Jesus comes down the, mount, comes down the hill, and they're cutting palm branches. And it says, Jesus goes into the temple. He did go into the temple. And it says he looked around, and it was late. So he left and went back to Bethany and spent the night. The next morning, Jesus gets up, goes back into town, and he walks into the temple, and he overturns the tables, and we have this big scene that's created. And so we have people look at that and they'll go, well, see, the Bible, the Bible isn't right because these guys have two different stories. One of the things you have to understand is that we, we think in a linear way. We think step-by-step, step, order, so forth. First of all, Eastern thought is not linear. And so Matthew here is free to pick and choose whatever parts of the story he wants to get across the point he's trying to get across. And by the way, all the gospel readers do that. That's why sometimes you read a story and they seem to be, there's different details. And you go, why did Matthew leave this out? Or why does Matthew give the appearance that Jesus comes down the mountain, walks into the temple, and, and cleanses the temple, while Mark has an overnight delay in there, we find out it's not till the next day. Why, why does Matthew <clears throat> make it appear like this was part of you know, Jesus' main thing on Palm Sunday. Well, the reason Matthew does that is because that's his point. And so he skips the other part of it. You know, it would be like this. It would be like, let's say I was in a car accident down here. <clears throat> and, and let's say that the guys that took my car away didn't haul it right, and they, they burned out the transmission. <clears throat> so I'm telling you the story. So you know what, I came this light, I, I got in this accident with this person, and you know what, I called the tow truck, and they, they came and they, they destroyed the transmission in my car. So if that was my point, that may be how I tell the story. However, if I wanted you to know that I, I was really impressed by the time it took for the ambulance to get there and take me back to the hospital and check me out, because I kind of bumped my head and I was fine, if I was impressed with the uh, ambulance service in town, I may not mention anything about the wrecking company or the tow. I am going to, I am going to tell the story and highlight the pieces of the story that get across what I'm trying to say. And does that mean I'm lying? No, because I leave something out. Does that mean, that doesn't mean any of that. Does that mean I'm not telling the truth? It means I'm telling you what I want you to know because of the point I'm trying to make. That's what Matthew does here. He is speaking to Jewish people. He is making a point. And he is making a point about the temple. And he is basically saying to the Jewish people, you guys got it all wrong. I am the, I am the reigning king. And Jesus comes into town. And he has something very specific he wanted those people to know. Jesus gets very angry. It was an amazing scene. I mean, here's a picture. 
of the temple. If you notice on the upper part of the screen, that big open area, that is the court of the Gentiles. That is where the Gentile people came. And then on the farthest up, there's kind of a covered area there. That's probably where the money changers had set up all their tables. So imagine there's all these animals and they're, they're selling all this stuff. And this is the place in the temple where people from outside of Israel that came, people that were not Jewish people, where they could come and, and be a part of the temple because it's important to understand God always intended not just to reach the Jewish nation, but that the Jews would be a light for all nations. And so there's a place in the temple for non-Jewish people. Why? Because God's desire is for non-Jewish people as well. And so these people are coming from foreign nations and they're, they're coming to this place that represents the presence of God. And Jesus goes, Jesus is horrified as to what they are experiencing, the impression they are getting of this God because of how they're treated. So what happens? Well, they, they show up and we find that it's a place of uh, scams. You ever heard of scams? <laughs> there are so many scams today going on, and it's nothing new. There were scams back in this day. And so people would come, and they only accepted uh, in, the, in the temple, the shekel of tear was the only coin they would accept. So people came with the common Greek drachma, and that, that wouldn't do, so everybody had to exchange money. If you're going to give an offering, if you're going to buy a sacrifice. So they charged 6% right off the top. And this was Caiaphas. His, if you go back, there was Annas. He had five sons. He got them all in as the high priest. And now he's got Caiaphas, who's his son-in-law. This is a family scam. They made, in our day, they made millions and millions and millions of dollars. Scamming the people. And what they would do is they would, first of all, they, the exchange rates were, um, you know, every dollar that came in, they got 6% right off the top just to exchange the money. And then what they would do is they would buy these animals, and first of all, the animals outside were very expensive. They were even more expensive inside. Uh, they tell us anywhere from 15 to 50 times the normal price of a dove or an animal. So these poor would come, and then they would buy something, they'd take it to the priest, and the priest would look at it, and they'd say, ah, oh, this one's got a little blemish, you can't use that one, you gotta go get another one. And it was, as Jesus said, it was no exaggeration when he said, this is a den of thieves. My house, this isn't my house, my house is to be called a house of prayer. You have made it. A den of thieves. And so we see here that it was the least fortunate that were hit the hardest. Jesus is really upset. And you know what? Mark gives us a little insight. Jesus had all night to sleep on that. He actually went in, as Mark tells us. He saw it the night before. He left and went home. I'm sure he thought about it all the way home. He may have been laying awake at night. And when he, come in, when he came back into that temple, uh, this is the most angry you'll ever see Jesus. And he's overturning tables. And, and he drives them out. 
and, and all the money changers and, and all of that and all the animals are driven out of that Gentile area. And so what comes in? Uh, it's important to see this picture. God is driving out this materialistic, this, these, these guys that are just taking advantage of people. And I think it's instructive to see what happens next. First of all, 21.14, look at what it says. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. Who comes to the temple? You know who the blind and the lame were? Those were the least of people in that culture. Some commentators believe, because of, there's a verse in Zechariah that says the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. If that was the case, this is really a big deal. Jesus inviting the blind and the lame coming into the temple. At best, the blind and the lame, it was believed that if you were blind and lame, the reason for your infirmity was because you had sinned and you're a sinner. And so there was a reason why you have this infirmity or this handicap. And so Jesus invites in these people, and what, is he, what do they experience in his house? They experience healing. The church is to be a place of healing. The church is not a place of healing. It's not the place of God. It's not his house. And so we see that the temple is a place where, where God wants the people with needs to come and find healing and to find help. Look at verse 15. It's interesting. The chief priests saw the wonderful things that he did. They saw the wonderful things, and yet they were ticked off. I guess they didn't think that wonderful things should happen in, in God's house. If you're part of, of God's house, there should be wonderful things taking place in people's lives. Wonderful things happening. Because that's part of what it means that his house would be called a house of prayer. And then verse 16 says, do you hear the, what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. They were indignant because the kids were making noise in church. The ki- you know how kids are when they're excited, when something good is happening. They, what do they do? Do they sit down and bow their hands and bow their heads and pray? No, they, they go running across the chairs in the sanctuary and we yell at them, right? Um, the point is this. These kids were excited. They probably had no idea who this Jesus really was. But they knew this was something really good. And, and they're excited and they're exuberant. And, and they maybe weren't even acting quite appropriate. But Jesus says, hey... You silence these kids, even the stones will cry out. And so, this is a place, my house shall be called a house for the lame. It is a place for the blind. It is a place for children. It is a place where people come and receive from me so much that I I want to give to them. If If I were to summarize this, this scene, this is, I, I just kind of rolled up this paragraph. I'm going to read part of it because <clears throat> um, I think this is what Jesus is saying. My temple is meant to be a place where people can come and truly connect with me. 
That's what prayer is. Prayer is getting connected with God and, and what He has. All people. All people. I am a light for all people. But when they come here, that's not what they're getting. They're getting burdensome laws. They're getting condemnation. And even worse, they're getting taken advantage of and being used for somebody else's purposes. Jesus said, this is to be a place of prayer. This is to be a place where people really can meet and commune and understand and know and experience me. This is not a place made for your own purposes. And so when Jesus is done, these religious leaders circle up and they have a little powwow and they go, this guy has got to go and it's got to happen soon. Who does this guy think he is? Does he, does he think he owns the world? He can just walk in here? What authority does he have? And, you know, before you get maybe too critical of, I mean, this is, this is a guy who says, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive, but I don't need to go to the DMV. Or I'm, I'm going to get a passport, but I don't need to go to the State Department. It's kind of like, well, what authority do you have? Well, Jesus had a lot of authority. Not only did he own the temple, he owned the world. And you know what? People knew it. And over and over it says he, he speaks with such authority. In a few moments he'll simply announce who he is in the garden and, and all of the Roman guards will fall. How does that happen? Authority, a powerful authority presence in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here he is, and they had no idea who was standing in their midst in that temple area. So what is the application? <clears throat> Let me just mention <clears throat> just a couple of things. Uh, first one, personally, individually. And we're going to talk about this in another message, so I'm not going to say a lot about it, but you might want to think about this. Personally, we no longer need the temple that was a shadow now you're the temple we are the temple now listen to this verse first corinthians six nineteen. do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have received from god you are not your own and so the, the first application here that i would challenge you to think about is that you are now the new temple. And you know what this temple is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a house, a temple of prayer. It's supposed to be a place where you can meet with God and you can commune with God and you can experience God. It's a place where when lame people and hurting people and the least of these uh, intersect your temple that they receive something, that there's healing there, that there's, there's something that, that God is doing in and through that temple. And from time to time, we perhaps all need a cleansing of that temple. Maybe there's some things in our lives that need to be driven out because they're getting in the way 
of, of what God really had in mind for these temples to be. Listen to John 17 again. Jesus says, he's talking to his father now. He's saying, just as you are in me and I am in you, in that way, may they also be in us. And that's a pretty amazing statement. But that is to be the experience that God wants in each of our lives personally. I think there's also a lesson here corporately, and that's together as the church. And in 1 Peter, it says, We are together being built into a spiritual house. So individually we are the temple of God, but really collectively we become the temple of God. And it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, we're being built together so that we can become the new temple. And so when people encounter us as the church... You know, as, as we come together in a building as, as the church, and the church isn't a building, but it's the people. As we come here and people walk through those doors, are there lame people and blind people and are there kids and are there people coming in here and they're finding, uh, we're seeing wonderful things happening? Is this a place where people can get excited about God? Is this a place where people find healing? Those are the kinds of things we see that God intends for his church to be. Jim Simbola states this in, in the message that he gave. <clears throat> he says, it doesn't say my house should be called a house of ritual. It doesn't say my house should be called even a house of programs or singing or learning. Not that there isn't a place, but he says, first and foremost, my house should be called a house of prayer, a place where people can connect with me. Everything else flows out of that. But if we have everything else, because you can have programs and you can have singing and you can have teaching and, and not engage the living Christ and not experience him in your heart and in your life. You know, I was thinking of just the conclusion of this and, and what, what strikes me is that there's a whole bunch of people in this community and, and you run into them and I run into them. And there are people that, that walked into the temple of, of God and there were money changers. Uh, it, just a, a metaphor, an analogy. It may not have been actually, obviously, literally money changers, but people have walked into churches and you know what? Those churches have not represented what the king wanted them to represent. It was about something else. It was about serving somebody else's purpose have been about money. And so <clears throat> they're out there and uh, they don't want to have anything to do with the temple and they don't want to have anything to do with the church because they walked into a place that was not what the Lord intended it <clears throat> to be. And so I, I, I think it's just so important uh, I think it's so important for us to, to be the church, to be the temple. Experience us. They experience the things that God 
wants to pour into their lives. And uh, I, I would just challenge you to, I would just challenge you to, <clears throat> to consider that personally and to consider that collectively in terms of what God has for each one of us. Father, this morning, I, uh, I thank you for this Palm Sunday. Thank you for walking into Jerusalem as king, pronouncing yourself as king. I thank you for demonstrating the desire that you have for your house, your people, your temple, to be a place uh, for all people and for all nations, and a place where people can come and experience healing, where people can come and experience the gospel of your grace, a place where we can come and, and look around and go, wow, there's, there, there are wonderful things taking place in your house. We can grow up and understand uh, your grace say who can say it is good to go into into the house of God and to be among the people of God so father that that's our desire as your church that's a desire as your people and uh, we ask that you would just continue to mold us and and shape us and that that you might have your way in in your church and in us. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.